Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. So we're back after a month off, and I'd like to take you today to this small village of Oradour-sur-Glane. It's in central France. Right, Oradour. It's um, pretty grim history there during the Second World War. Oradour n'a plus de femme. Oradour n'a plus un homme. Oradour n'a plus de feuilles. Oradour n'a plus de pierres. Oradour n'a plus d'église. Oradour n'a plus d'enfants. Oradour has no more women, no more men, no more leaves, no more church, no more children. Oradour, je n'ose plus lire ou prononcer ton nom. This is a poem, Sarah, by Jean Tardieu. It was written in September 1944, so just a couple of months after the biggest mass killing in France during World War II. France was occupied by the Nazis at the time, and on the 10th of June 1944, SS soldiers went in and massacred 643 men, women and children. So this was just four days after D-Day when the Allies landed in Normandy and, and thought the war was finally turning in their favour. Yeah, and Germans were getting nervous. Orders were sent out to be merciless in quashing the resistance to terrify the population into, for example, denouncing the Maquisar. In fact, Oradour was far from the front. It was a lively, prosperous village in a very pretty part of the country uh, near the town Limoges. So not really a hotbed of the resistance. Yeah. And so when the SS came in and encircled the village in the afternoon and ordered everyone to go into the main square, no one was suspicious. They didn't mm. feel they had anything to hide, so they all went. The men were then shot or burned alive in a number of different locations in the village. The women and all the children from the school, and that included children from surrounding small villages, were taken to the church and they were shot or burned. The SS then set fire to the whole village so that there would be no trace of what had happened. Virtually everyone who was there in the village that afternoon was killed. The few who miraculously survived were able to document uh, what happened on that day. In fact, it was just a few hours. Mm. Then in November 1944, uh, General Charles de Gaulle, of course France was still at war, decided that Oradour would become a martyred village. He gave instructions that it should be kept exactly in the state of destruction it was left in as a permanent reminder, if you like, of Nazi barbarity. And it's still there today. And they commemorate the victims of the massacre every year. This year, it will be a bit different because the last surviving eyewitness of the massacre, Robert Ebras, died in February. But as I found out, there is still a strong will to keep the memory alive. Vous voyez la cloche sous les tuiles? Voilà, ça c'est la cloche de l'école des garçons. Babette Robert, the head of the Remembrance Centre, is showing me what remains of the boys' school. And it still has the bell on the outside. So we're just walking down the main alley of the martyred village. And all that remains are the ruins of all the houses and shops that were burnt down, decimated by the SS. Every time I come into the village, I feel differently. And now with spring, everything's growing again. All the flowers, leaves on the trees, there's life. There's such a contrast between nature and the buildings all in ruins. It's your first visit. What's your impression? Well, it's a beautiful sunny day, so (laughs) it sort of lifts the spirit slightly. Um, In some way, it looks a bit like a film set. 
on pourrait se croire dans un film, mais elles sont là, elles sont réelles. You may feel cinéma, like you're in a film, but it's not cinema. It's not a stage set. C'est le mur de la maison tel qu'elle était. seeing the wall of the house as it was back then, the barn as it was. We are now in front of the girls' school, and very little remains here. We just have the front wall. Obviously, there's no windows anymore. There's no door. And then the back wall is half fallen down. There's a pile of rubble in the middle. The water pump over there. Oui. A sink. The remains of a vehicle. Can we, let's walk a little <laughs> bit further down here. Was this a tramway yeah. on the left-hand yeah. side? I yeah. can see two rails. Yeah. So the tram went through the village. Yeah. Il y a ce tramway qui passe mm. et qui est relié au radour à Limoges en The tramway went through the village environ. and linked it to Limoges et in about an hour. Some people worked in Limoges and lived in Oradour and it probably explains how the village prospered. It was very lively with a lot of small businesses and artisans that attracted a lot of people. On market days it was really busy. En face là, nous sommes là dans un garage. Yeah, this was a, a garage run by the Desourto family. Et dans ce garage, eh bien, nous pouvons voir encore les, les, les restes de, de plusieurs véhicules. Mm. You can see the remains of vehicles. This was where some of the men were executed, as this plaque says. Qui sur le côté l'indique. So, this was one of the places. There were five where men were rounded up, burnt and shot by the Nazis. There are some visitors quietly walking through the village, looking, taking photographs, of course. It's free. You, you don't have to pay to come in here. I wanted to pay my respects, and it really is deeply moving. When you read plaques like charred bodies found here, or bodies hidden here, you can scarcely imagine the horror. We probably don't talk about it enough, apart from the day it's commemorated. On the 10th of June each year, people, especially from the new village of Oradour, which was built just next door in the late 40s, early 50s, pay tribute to the victims of the massacre. It was the only day we saw our grandfather crying, says Benoit Sadri, the head of the Association for Families of Victims of the Massacre. His grandfather lost his sister and six out of the seven children in the family. We're in front of my grandfather's sister's house. She lived here with her three children. Her husband ran a butcher's in the village. On the day of the massacre, he'd gone to the market to buy animals. So he survived, but he lost his wife and children. It's a symbolic place for me because my grandparents didn't talk much about the massacre. When we came here with my grandfather, it was always after the commemoration ceremony on the 10th of June. It was troubling for me and my cousins because it was the only time we saw him cry. I think it was a way for him to share his feelings, but without imposing the history of the massacre. I'm told that around 300,000 visitors come every year, and about a quarter of them are from abroad. A lot of Brits. I'm Mark, Mark Grinney, from Hull in the UK, and uh, yeah, I'm over, over with some friends on a, on a fishing holiday. And uh, we decided to uh, 
to come and visit this place to uh, just experience it really and you know be somewhere where something so kind of tragic happened. And so what do you make of it then? Um, I think the thing that's really struck me anyway is the around the village there's some plaques and um, my friend Craig has got a, a Google Translate and it kind of says um, here a group of men were tortured and burned and then when you kind of read that in that instance and you think this happened right here you know it kind of sends a, a bit of a shiver up your up your spine like you can sort of see how people were living their lives and you know and it's a nice village and it's got a, a, a sort of sense of peace to it and then the reason you're here is quite brutal and just the thought of what happened there you know especially when you come to places like we can see the bones and these pictures of people so you can sort of link it to the story rather than it just being a story so so yeah can you tell me your name? It's Craig Alts. There's nothing, there's nothing remotely like this in the UK. Very special. It's so nice that it's it's preserved and the, the you know the French people really treasure it and, and look after it and remember remember what happened to their own. But time is taking a heavy toll on Ohadur. Battered by the elements, the wind, rain and frost, the ruins are getting smaller and smaller by the day. Benoit Sadri is also a delegate with France's Heritage Foundation. He stops to take a photo to show how his grand-aunt's house is falling into further ruin. As a child, I remember that the back wall was still standing, but most of them have fallen down since. Plants have grown on the wall and it's very dangerous. If we remove it, it'll weaken the wall even more. But if we don't, it'll carry on spreading and cause more damage. Some four stays have been put up and a huge crack has been plowed with big stables. It really shows the damage caused by the passing of time and vegetation. There are still places, for example, the barns, where men were executed, where you could still see bullet holes in the rear walls. But now they've fallen down. The bullet holes showed that a mass killing was carried out here. The martyred village belongs to the state, and last year it agreed to continue conservation work in the village. The church is being renovated at a cost of around half a million euros. But Sadri says the whole site is in need of attention, and that could run into tens of millions. The idea is to launch public fundraising, a bit like for Notre Dame. It's in the same spirit because Notre Dame belongs to the state and so does Oradour. If we want to be able to say that we will still see the village in 40 years' time, it needs a lot of investment. Probably several tens of millions of euros are needed to save Oradour. It is the most popular site in the Limousine countryside. 300,000 visitors per year. So the village's message isn't losing steam. On the contrary, people are still coming, including lots of school children. My name is Laura Vidobail. I'm an English teacher and we come from Nai in the south of France. And it's very important for our students who are about 14 to remember about Oradour sur Glane, to remember that men were tortured, to remember that women and children were killed, and to remember how humans can be cruel and 
how life can be difficult as well. We thought it was a good idea because they are in year nine. So for them, it is part of the history book. Yes. Allez, qui c'est qui vient dire un petit mot My name is Clementine. I'm 14. And for me, it's very important to remember what's happened here because the mistake could happen again if mustn't. So, Alison, this martyred village is, is a museum, I guess, kind of. Yeah, um, kind of open-air museum. Yeah, yeah, but for those who survived, like, where did they end up living? In the immediate aftermath, the government built temporary wooden housing, and then it launched a big sort of national project to build a new village right next door, a kind of model village with proper bathrooms and all the modern amenities that French villagers lacked in the late 40s and 50s. It took years for people to go back and live there, of course. But since then, new families have chosen to settle there, and it's become a dynamic village. When you enter it, you go past the memorial centre on the one side and the martyred village. So they kind of live in the shadow of their history. Um, but as you reported, it is falling apart, though there's something kind of poetic in the, the vegetation and the leaves taking over the horror. And while it's important to remember, maybe there's this real image there of the passing of time. Le sida, mystérieuse maladie encore mal connue du monde médical, vent de panique aux USA, inquiétude en Europe. So there's a newscast from 1983 talking about AIDS. Um, 40 years ago, on the 20th of May 1983, a group of French scientists published a paper in Science identifying the HIV virus that caused AIDS. They found it in a sample taken by a doctor in Paris, Willy Rosenbaum, who'd been working with patients to try to identify what was being called at the time the gay cancer. Mm. Our colleague Jess Phelan spoke to Rosenbaum, and, and he told her about a day in 1982 when he was reading an American scientific journal describing the very first cases of AIDS. Later the very same day, a patient comes into his office saying they've recently travelled to the US. Mm. It was a gay man. He was there with his boyfriend. He was coughing. He had symptoms that Dr. Rosenbaum recognised pretty quickly ah. as actually what he'd just been reading about. So at this point, it became clear this disease, they weren't sure, you know, they knew almost nothing about it at the time. They knew nothing about how it was caused. They realised, OK, this is something that seems to be affecting gay men. Could it be that there was a bad batch of poppers ah, or something? Oh, right. Like, really no idea how it was being, you no know, was it in the idea. air? Was it, yeah, was it something yeah. they ate? Like, what is it? Yeah. Exactly, which I think is so hard for us to kind of put ourselves back in that period mm. of in the very first days when we didn't even, people weren't even sure that it was a virus right. or how it was transmitted. So Rosenbaum is reading about this. He starts identifying this patient and others. Um, then what happens? He sort of started asking around and formed this sort of working group who quickly identified a number of other cases. So he formed this working group and that obviously involved bringing a lot of affected populations to his place of work. And that wasn't always easy to get acceptance of that. Prejudice was uh, <laughs> the first reaction of most of people, including uh, physicians. I had to change several times of hospital uh, because my colleagues don't want to see gay men or IV drug users coming too much in the hospital. 
So at the time, then they had a guess of maybe how it was transmitted. But even then, that was not very clear. And they had no idea, of course, like how to treat it or even prevent it. Exactly. So the first step is figuring out exactly what is causing it. So what Dr. Rosenbaum and his colleagues kind of hit upon was maybe what if we looked at patients in the very early stages of AIDS? And what if we looked at samples from the lymph node, Mm. which seemed to be one of the first symptoms in AIDS patients that you get this kind of swelling in your lymph node in your neck. And so they couldn't do this alone though, right? Exactly. So they needed a very specialized team, a very advanced laboratory. And so they turned to the Pasteur Institute. Known for tuberculosis and all these other infectious diseases. Exactly. It has a long history of working with highly infectious diseases and really being at the forefront of developing vaccines. Um, And so this team in Paris, um, led by a scientist called Luc Montaigne, they agreed to study this sample. So at the end of 1982, Dr. Rosenbaum took this sample from the lymph node of one of his patients, transported it to the Pasteur Institute's laboratory, and there the specialist began studying it. Within a month, less than a month, they'd already identified very strong signs of this virus. And then a few weeks later, they were able to actually spot it under a microscope. Mm. They took images of it. And by May, they'd written this article, which then appeared in Science, in which they described this virus for the first time. So this was HIV? It was, although at the time they were calling it lymphadenopathy-associated virus, or LAV. Oh, the lymph node. The lymph node, exactly. So there was some caution about saying this is the cause of AIDS. Right. They knew it was something that they'd identified from someone in the early stages of AIDS, but they didn't kind of say conclusively this is what causes AIDS. So this was a major coup for Rosenbaum, for for the Pasteur Institute, Um, though I do understand there's some American scientists who are claiming credit for having discovered the HIV virus. So what's up with that? Yeah, so this was a sort of interesting coda that came about a year later to Mm. huge fanfare. The U.S. government held a press conference in which they said essentially... American scientists have found the cause of AIDS. Ah. They'd identified a virus, but they were saying it was sort of a relative of this other retrovirus that they'd already been working on. Ah, So So they're trying to claim prior credit, and it turns out it was probably the same virus, right? Well, exactly. This is what was was subsequently proven, thanks to DNA analysis, um, it was proven that the two viruses are the same. But they fought over who got credit. I mean, because this is probably more important than just like, oh, I get to put my name on the discovery, right? Right. It's not just a question of glory. There were very real economic consequences as well, because identifying the virus means that you can develop tests mm. for the virus. And very quickly after the French team made this discovery, they almost immediately began working on developing a test. The American team also developed a test and claimed a patent on it, which meant that they would get the royalties from all the sales of these tests. Um, So the Pasteur Institute ended up taking them to court. The governments got involved, even the presidents at the time. They had to mediate. And eventually they settled the question by 
essentially saying they would share the credit and they would split the royalties 50-50. Now, years later in 2008, the French team, or at least two members of the French team, were awarded the Nobel Prize for so, medicine. So, but no Americans. No Americans. <laughs> so they got the glory. They got the and glory half the ultimately. <laughs> yeah, which is you know there's still some controversy even today. Sure, sure. But so at the heart of this though, then is Rosenbaum, this this doctor who initially identified these patients in Paris in the early 80s and made that connection. He started it all. That's right. Yeah, and he doesn't necessarily claim the glory for himself. He emphasizes that it was a team effort and he emphasizes that most importantly, this was for him, this was always about the patients. It was not like a mission. It was just uh, looking to understand. Uh, I was just want to understand more, uh, not only for uh, speculation, uh, but also because I think that uh, it could be beneficial for the patients at the end. As it was, <laughs> finally. It takes time, but uh, it was. So the identification of the virus was really the first breakthrough and it was the first step towards developing, firstly, a test. And ultimately, it led to the genetic sequencing of the virus, which allowed scientists to develop antiretroviral drugs, which have made such a huge difference to the lives of people with HIV. So Dr. Rosenbaum still works with HIV patients today, and now the outlook for them is totally different to when he started in the 1980s. During uh, several decades, we make a lot of progress. Uh, as I'm probably retiring in uh, some months, uh, I'm telling to my patients, uh, someone I'm following for 40 years, I tell them that they don't need me anymore because the treatment is very easy. They may have... A normal life. Pleure pas, pleure pas, c'est ton corps, c'est ton droit. Pleure pas, pleure pas, un jour tu le garderas pour toi. So, Alison, if I talk about mifepristone and misoprostol, what does it say for you? They are the names of abortion drugs. Exactly, exactly. And drugs, medicine, is the most common way to abort these days. A dose of mifepristone, then you take one of misoprostol, that triggers the expulsion of the embryo one or two days later. Abortion is legal in France up to 16 weeks mm -hmm. after your last period or 14 weeks into pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And medication abortions are allowed up to seven weeks of pregnancy. In France, two-thirds of abortions are done with these pills. Mm -hmm. In the United States, where the right to abortion is being challenged in the wake of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, that's the constitutional right to abortion that happened last year, Anti-abortion activists are now trying to limit access to these pills that would make even the few abortions allowed in some states possible. Now, last month, the Supreme Court was hearing a case that would overturn the Federal Drug Administration's authorization of mifepristone. And at the same time, French abortion providers were finding it hard to access the other drug, misoprostol. We run out very soon this year with miso-1. Then we, we bought Jimizo. And then soon, Jimizo was no more available also in France. Isabelle Louis works for the Planning Familiale in Paris, which provides contraception and abortions for women in the Paris region. Miso-1 and Jimiso are the names of the two misoprostol drugs authorized in France, both produced by the same U.S.-owned pharmaceutical company, Nordic Pharma. Isabelle orders the medicine from the local pharmacy down the street. 
because we are a private practice here. So we have to, we don't buy directly from the lab. We buy from the chemist shop. Uh, we go every two weeks. We buy like 50 pills. Uh, we buy like 25 of misoprostone, then 50 of miso one. And uh, they started to run out with miso one. Then we bought some jimizo. But miso one is just one pill that you have to, to put in your mask. Jimizo, it's two pills. And then we ran out from jimizo. So we uh, didn't know how we could provide women with abortion. The center where she works provides abortions to about 40 women each week. They get an ultrasound and then they receive the mixture of the pills. The mesoprostal shortage was nerve-wracking because this is time-sensitive. You can only take these pills up to seven weeks into a pregnancy. And that isn't very long, is it? Especially since it might take a month or so to even realize that you're pregnant, especially if it wasn't a planned pregnancy. Exactly. And after that, you have to go get a surgical abortion that involves a hospital visit, anesthesia. It's just a different procedure. So the pharmacy got in touch with the pharmaceutical company, as did Isabel. No one gave a good explanation why there were supply problems. When practitioners warned the health ministry and the regional health agency, the ministry said there wasn't a supply problem. They just called tensions in some areas. Mm. But for the people on the ground, it was very frustrating. We were angry and stressed because we are in Paris, but we provide abortion for women from all uh, Ile-de-France and sometimes from the northern France because uh, there's not a lot of places when you can access abortion. So we were very, very angry. After a few weeks, the pharmacy did manage to receive some pills. The government had negotiated a shipment that had been intended for Italy. They are still in Italian, but they put a sticker in French. Right. So what are we looking at? It's the uh, miso one, the one that we were looking for. This is the Italian box, and they put a sticker in French on it. We're looking at a box of pills, which for Isabel was a stopgap measure that worried her, because access to abortion in Italy is even more tenuous than it is in France. The company did assure her that no one was missing out on the pills, though. Her clinic didn't have to turn anyone away or delay any procedures, but one patient did have to be sent across town to another doctor. There was one session where we didn't have enough medicine because when you are between seven and nine weeks of pregnancy, you take more pills. And uh, we had to call one of our doctor's partner and she had one more pill left. So we gave the address to the woman and she had to cross all Paris to get access to her rights. Isabel has never experienced this kind of shortage before. Sometimes some brief disruptions for contraception, but this was pretty dramatic. And for now, the situation's back to normal, but for how long? Uh, the fact that this shortage came just as the U.S. is considering overturning the authorization of one of the abortion pills could seem a bit suspicious, no? Yeah. France's High Council for Equality Between Men and Women warned in mid-April that U.S. states are, quote, building up stocks to mitigate a possible halt in production. And the situation, quote, poses the risk of a shortage in France. But that's not the only explanation, Pauline Londex told me. She's of the Observatory for Transparency in Drug Policies. The first thing is the general situation of the drug market in the world. Their tensions on all medicines, uh, their shortages of about almost every medicine. Our first thought was that it was linked to this uh, structural problem, but our second thought was that maybe it was linked to the decision in the United States. Now, Londex is a drug access activist, and her observatory worked with the planning familial to raise the alert about the misoprostal shortage back in April. So we went to the website of the uh, regulators in France, uh, the ANSM, which is the agency that delivers the market approvals and that follows a track of the stocks in the country. 
uh, what we found on the website of the of this agency was that um, there were some uh, tension that's how it's called in France saying that the stocks were lower uh, for this medicine. So it was already aware like officially it was noted. Exactly. And on this website there is a formal letter from the, the company that manufactured the medicine saying that they had problems in providing the usual quantity of stocks. It's hard to not immediately jump to thinking, you know, what's going on elsewhere in the world, like in the United States, where there's a lot of debates over abortion and there are stories of women buying it in other countries and sending it. I mean, it's hard not to jump there and be like, oh, maybe all of it is just being sent to the United States. Is that, was that your first thought? There are three things. The first thing is the general um, situation of the drug market in the world. Uh, there are shortages of insulin, um, antiretrovirals, anti-cancer drugs. There are thousands of medicines for which we are facing shortages and tensions. Uh, but our second thought was exactly what you said. It was that maybe it was linked to the fact that some states in the United States um, have been wanting to buy stocks, more stocks, of this medicine to secure it. So there was alerts that there was a shortage in France. What was the official reaction? Uh, we decided to alert on the situation because they didn't have any answer from the Ministry of Health. So already this is a problem. We had to wait two weeks, for two weeks, for the Minister of Health to say something in medias. He said that it was not true that there were only tensions of misoprostol. I would say that in the past two years, that's what we have seen on drug shortages. They say there is no problem. The drug shortages have been a long time coming, or is this only recently? In the past uh, 10 years, uh, there has been uh, an increasing of drug shortages in France. There are different reasons. Uh, one of them that we really have to understand is that there is an increase of the capacity to pay, the ability to pay of middle-income countries, including China, India, Brazil. So these countries have more money uh, to dedicate to the health sectors. And as we are talking about billions of people, if there is uh, an increase of the, the demand in these countries, then it increases the, the global needs in medicines. And the companies haven't been keeping up in terms of manufacturing. It's exactly this. Um, the companies have not been uh, anticipating this enough. And we know that if we want to cover the health needs, we need to increase the volumes of medicines produced. And there is two other reasons. One of them is uh, epidemiological. With many countries in the global south that are facing epidemiological transition, which is an increase of non-communicable diseases, uh, such as cancer, diabetes, and so on. And so there is also an increasing need of these medicines in these countries. And also there are the emerging pandemics that will lead to an increase of the needs on medicines. So all these elements make it very clear that we will need much more medicines and we need to anticipate, otherwise there will be an increasing number of shortages. And so going back to misoprostol, wasn't there then a reaction saying, okay, now France needs to develop a generic version of this drug? There was a reaction like this, but by, um, by a member of the parliament. I think this is very clear. We need to ensure the security on this drug. We need several producers. Because let's imagine what can happen if the production is concentrated in a country that would, for instance, uh, make war to another country. It will be dependent to this country. 
Is France have the capacity to make medicines, misoprostol or others? France has the capacity. It has also to develop more capacities. Uh, clearly, it will not be possible to produce everything in the very short term, but things can be launched. Uh, it can be launched also jointly with other uh, European countries. We think that public production is important, but on this specific case, we think that we also need a private uh, production. We need both because we think that if there is a switch of governments in France, if there is a public production only, it can also be a problem. Because if you have a government that's against abortion, they could stop production of abortion drugs. Exactly. So to, to sort of conclude this misoprostol story then, like the, the shortages now are, are done? Like where are we at today in, you know, end of May? It seems to be a little bit better now, but our fear is that as soon as there will be um, another problem, another country will want to uh, peel up uh, stocks, then it will be again a problem. Do you think that the company itself would have in, it's in their interest to produce more if they could sell more? Maybe if they can open an, another plant, maybe they don't want to do that for misoprostol. Maybe they want to do that for another medicine that they will sell at a higher price. Um, that's the limit for us of the pharmaceutical industry that only regulates around this demand rule because at the end of the day, it's the producers who decide where they can make more money and there is no continuity, there is no vision of what's needed in terms of the population needs. Après les So we've come to the end of a spotlight on France. We're a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be back on Thursday, June the 15th. You can get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. Sur la belle